Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Leviathan Chronicles Season 2 The story thus far. McAllen Orsall has assembled a strike force of Darkwater agents within Leviathan and is on her way to infiltrate a Black Door station known as Iron Gate. She hopes to obtain information as to the whereabouts of the escaped Seraxian aliens, who have been aided by a conspiracy between Jason Sterling and the late traitor Banu. Leviathan desperately needs the energy from a Starstone to save it from imminent collapse due to the destructive computer virus that Banu implanted within the city's AI network before he died. High above the Himalayan mountains of Putam, Senshin and Whit Roberts have stolen a rescue helicopter from a group of illegal climbers and are now racing to rendezvous with the Rebellion jet that will take them to New York City. Senshin has assured Whit Roberts that the key to finding the missing aliens lies in Manhattan and that they must reach their destination before McAllen and the Edeners. But on the other side of the earth, Harlequin is convalescing at a sanctuary facility hidden deep underneath the Las Vegas Strip. His young ward, Lizette, has been warned that the two of them have business to attend to while staying in Sin City. And back in Okinawa, Japan, Tully and Oberlin have escaped from Black Door Enforcement Agent Celeste Harris's custody and are now fugitives on the run in Naha City. With no place to hide, the two have turned to a questionable acquaintance from their past, Fish Egg Freddy, who has agreed to shelter them from the authorities in exchange for a princely song. And now, Chapter 32, A Glittering Trap. Oh. Jesus, these things don't get any lighter. I know. Who the hell thought fish guts could be so heavy? How many is that? We've loaded 15. Oh, we have another 10 boxes to go. I gotta take a break. I just gotta sit down for one second. Tully! Tully, you move too slow! No sitting, no sitting! You move like a walrus with a penguin in the ass! Move faster! Oberlin, where you hang out with this guy? Come on, Fred. You're riding me all day, man. Don't talk back to Fish Egg Freddy! I did you a big favor, now you work for me! Work hard! Lots more trucks coming in this afternoon! You help Freddy save money on business! Oh, come on. Can't we take a quick break? No time for break! Time for work! Now, chop chop! <sighs> Oberlin and Tully were now indentured servants, toiling for three days straight in the bowels of the Makishi fish market in Okinawa. Clad in blood-stained grey overalls and white caps, they appeared indistinguishable from the other dozens of low-paid labourers in the busy fish market, with the exception of their height and eyes. The pair had spent their days frantically loading and unloading delivery trucks containing crates of fish, fish parts and other seafood-related products. Just as the two were lifting their last crate of live eels onto a loading pallet, Fish Egg Freddy came sprinting out of his office, 
waving his hand while holding a white slip of paper. Overland, Tully, come! Come quick to my fishing office! Big news, very big news! This is a very big day! Come on now, come now! You move like junk sea cow! Move fast! Oberlin and Tully exchanged tired glances at one another, then made their way to Freddy's tiny clapboard office at the far end of the fish market. What is it, Freddy? You said we could take a break. Yeah. Uh, take break now! Sit down, sit down! Freddy, have good news! Let me guess. More trucks to unload. Ah, you got very funny. <laughs> Today, I got very important phone call. Intercontinental Hotel call me. Best hotel in Okinawa. They want 20 kilo of beluga from Freddy. From my fish egg office. This is a big score, Tully. Big ticket for fish egg Freddy. Holy shit. That's, that's great news, Freddy. How'd you get such a big order? Yeah, it seems a little... Inappropriate? You mean it up? Now doesn't matter. Many months ago, white day come. Man in business suit come into my office. All of Mikishi Fish Market was closed, but Freddy's still in office because he worked so hard. You were here late watching porn at your desk. Man come into my office. He say he needs special present for white day here in Japan. He has lady friend he loved very much. Want to give her surprise dinner, but need very special fish egg. Albino caviar from Iran. Very rare. He say he looked everywhere, but only Freddy has a very small tin. 50 grams. I give it to man. I say, you love lady friend when you come to my fish egg office. I give you caviar for free. That's what I said to the man. You're full of shit, Freddy. You wouldn't give a tin of rare caviar to your mother if she were dying in front of you. Oh, okay. Maybe I charge him a little bit. Freddy, don't bullshit a couple of bullshitters. Ah, okay. Maybe I charge him a little bit more. Freddy like to make money, too. Freddy? All right, all right, all right. I took all his money. But listen to this story. Story very good. The man thanked Freddy. Lady friend love the gold caviar, give him sexy bedtime. Oh, he love Freddy now. His love life very good now because of Freddy. I really don't know where this is going, but I just kind of want to brush my teeth right now. Yeah, Freddy, what's this got to do? Okay, okay, okay. Now, this man called me back months later, say he now run Intercontinental Hotel. He said to me, Freddy, you now number one fish egg guy for big hotel. You give us 20 kilos of beluga for our very best hotel customer. We buy all our caviar from you. From me. Big order, Tully. Big payday for Fish Egg Freddy. If I said this whole thing sounded fishy, would that be too on the nose? Yeah, you're a real Oscar Wilde. Hey, Freddy, isn't beluga the really expensive stuff? That order must be worth 100,000. More like 200,000. My god, Freddy, I didn't think you had anything like that in inventory. Inventory, no problem for Freddy. What, you're brokering a trade? You got another guy on the side you're gonna sell the order to? Yeah, all I saw in the back was that crappy paddlefish caviar that I wouldn't even serve to my- No, 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 no! Suddenly, all three men fell silent, and the truth dawned on Oberlin and Tully. You're not brokering the trade. And you don't have any beluga caviar in inventory. (sighs) You're gonna relabel the shit caviar and sell it as good caviar. Freddy, this is crazy. I'm no gourmand, but even I could tell the difference between beluga and and whatever it is you're selling. It's like chicken shit and chicken salad. You're effectively trying to cheat a major hotel chain out of probably 150,000 large that you- Don't judge, Freddy! No judgment from you two penguins. 
You two guys don't understand business. This is a big business deal for me. You two don't know nothing about fish egg business. How are you gonna do it, Freddy? You know these guys are gonna take one taste of whatever it is you're selling and call the cops on you. They're gonna run you straight out of town and shut down your shop. They already tasted Freddy's fish egg. How you think I got the order? They already tasted my beluga. Freddy's the number one fish egg guy. I don't get it. They tasted it already. Either they've got the worst chef in the Pacific Rim or- oh, You're doctoring the eggs. You're totally doctoring the eggs, aren't you? Shh. I use my special fish egg Freddy sauce. I mix special sauce into fish eggs. Makes all fish egg look and taste like beluga caviar. I work for one year to make special sauce. Many secret ingredients in special sauce. Very hard to make. Freddy, I really don't want to know about your special sauce. Kind of makes me want to throw up a little. I make 90% profit margin. Very good deal. <laughs> Get me out of Mama's house. I work very hard to make special sauce. I work very hard to get big order. Freddy has this coming to him. Are we gonna fight this? I, I wouldn't know where to start. Oh, come on. Let's go out now. Let's celebrate big order. We rock out with cock out. We get champagne, whiskey, make big celebration. We party like rock star. Freddy's a big man. Look, uh... I don't want to rain on your parade, but I'm not sure whiskey and champagne are the greatest combination in- Yeah, Freddy, we're pretty tired from schlepping all your boxes today. We'd love to just catch an early night and grab some beers. Oh, no, 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 we go out now. Fish egg, Freddy gonna take you to classy bar now. You're gonna meet some of Freddy's closest friends. Don't embarrass Freddy, I got a big order today, serious player. Come on, I'll take you to a good bar. Let's get this show on the road. Chop, chop. Whatever you say, Fred. Fine. Let's get going. Whoa, hold up, hold up, hold up. Where are you two ass clowns going? You said we're going with you. You just said we're celebrating in some classy bar. Not dressed like that. You two still wearing fish clothes. You smell like rotten crab claw. You change into better clothes. You'll make Freddy look bad. This is a classy bar with dress code. You don't embarrass Fish Egg Freddy. Oh, but then why you hang out with this guy? Look, Freddy, we told you. We don't have any other clothes. We snuck off a military base. and didn't quite have time to pack up a wardrobe trunk. All right, all right. I'll buy you two squid heads some flashy clothes. I know a good clothing store near the market. I'll make you look like George Clooney and Brad Pitt, but you pay Freddy back, yes? All right, um... All right, Freddy, sure thing. You lead the way. Are you Pitt or Clooney? Because I see you more as a DeVito. Oh, shut up. 30 minutes later, Oberlin, Tully and Fish Egg Freddy walked out of the crowded Naha Market, a frenetic open-air bazaar where everything from household appliances to children's toys to fine clothing was sold. Freddy was now dressed in an oversized midnight blue blazer, accented by wide pinstripes. He spun around to face his two companions. Now you look like locals. Blend in better, I hide you well. You two thank Fish Egg Freddy now for taking good care of his friends. I'm not sure thank is the word you mean. Oberlin was dressed in an obnoxious fire engine red Hawaiian shirt depicting flamingos with sunglasses riding surfboards. Green and white palm fronds exploded everywhere on his shirt with no discernible pattern. 
The new shorts Freddie bought him were unfortunately made out of the identical fabric. And to add insult to injury, Freddie insisted on purchasing Oberlin a baseball cap that read Professional Bikini Inspector across the rim. But Oberlin's humiliation paled to the embarrassment that Tully now felt, walking out of one of the brightly colored clothing stores in the market. He now wore a pale yellow Hello Kitty shirt with bright orange sweatpants that read the word Juicy across his rear. Looking defeated, Tully turned to Oberlin. No, you look like Don Ho. You know, you look like a Japanese schoolgirl who's about to be shoved into her locker by the mean girls. Hey, you two, come on! We got big celebration tonight! Freddy's now a big player. I get my drink on in Pimka! All right, Freddy. Now that you've dressed us up for prom, can we just go to your classy bar and get some drinks poured? I'm thirsty and getting cranky. All right, all right, all right! Let's go! Now remember, don't embarrass Freddy at classy bar, got it? One hour later. Um, Freddy, how good do you think your English is? I speak very good English. I could work for BBC, but I said no. Too busy with fish egg. Um, I don't think you have an accurate definition for the word classy. Maybe he meant the word assy. Look at this place, classy bar. I thought you said there was a dress code. That's right. Good dress code. I tell girls to take off dress. <laughs> That's my code. <laughs> you really are the Bill Hicks of Asia. Oberlin, Tully, and Fish Egg Freddy walked through a pair of shining metal doors to enter the main dance floor of the Pink Pussycat Gentlemen's Club. On the center main stage, a young woman wearing six-inch clear lucite heels twirled upside down on a chrome pole wearing only a pink lace thong. Two smaller stages without poles flanked the sides, each containing gyrating women dancing with one another seductively. Women dressed in short evening gowns patrolled the floor looking to sit next to or on the gentlemen customers that gazed up from their velvet chairs with slack-jawed reverence. Good evening, and welcome <laughs> to the Pink Pussycat. May I seat you, gentlemen? Yeah, yeah, you find us good seats, okay, near the big stage, because we big spenders, right, Tully? <laughs> oh, ah, uh, uh, three flashlights, please. The lingerie-clad hostess seated the men at a low glass table beside the main stage. Moments later, a waitress wearing a garter belt and leather bustier took the group's drink order and quickly returned with refreshments. All right, we got three shots of Jägermeister, three Sapporo, and three Johnny Walker Black. Oh, do we have to do the Jägermeister shot? Yeah, classy drink. Come on, Tully. Um. Germanic spirits don't always agree with me. Here, you drink beer, Oberlin. I got you beer, too. Freddy, you're spilling it. Ah. You drink now. Everybody drink. Make a big toast to my fish egg order. I'm original gangster. Okay, I'll try. To fish egg Freddy, um, if life were a bowl of uh, cherries, then you'd be the... Uh, no, that's not right. Um, I come to bury Freddy, not to praise him. No, you sit down now. You can't talk your way out of paper bag. I don't know how you two ass clowns manage to... <laughs> oh, hello, pretty lady. You come sit next to Freddy. Sit down right here. Good spot. A comely young Asian woman slithered next to Freddy, placing one of her lissom legs across his lap. She ran her fingers into his hair as he bowed his head into her fragrant neck. Ah, oh, Jesus. This is really appalling, Tully. The law of the world. I can't believe Freddy took us to a place like this that objectifies women in such a... Oh my god. Tully, do you see that girl? She's hotter than a train spotter's crack pipe. Oh, miss, miss. 
I think I might like one of your dances, please. The evening dragged on painfully, with Fish Egg Freddy buying drinks in rounds of three, six, and then ten and twelve to accommodate all of the female guests that their merry little group hey, was accumulating. She's like an angel, Tully. I think that might be a dude. The hostess soon was forced to bring over another table to accommodate the slew of half-consumed cocktail glasses that were now littered in front of them. Shots! We do shots now! The alcohol was beginning to take its toll on everyone. Freddy had barged his way into the DJ booth, knocking over another patron's drinks, and was forced to lean on a helpless young Russian girl in a fishnet body stocking. He was permitted to stay in the booth with the DJ spinning records, but was finally forcibly ejected after playing Jay-Z's Empire State of Mind seven times in a row. Oberlin was still deep into conversation with a luscious blonde college student from Latvia. So what exactly happens in the champagne room? Oh, we can get a lot more relaxed. Really? Because I felt pretty relaxed when you gave me that lap dance a minute ago. No, no, trust me, darling. It gets better in the champagne room. A whole lot better. Wow. Like, take my pants off better. Sweetie, come on. What do you think I am? You see, that's just it. I'm not really sure so. So that's why I'm asking you all of these questions. Tully, in the meantime, was lost in thought with a Japanese woman wearing nothing but thigh-high boots and a black thong. She possessed a stunningly intricate Irozumi tattoo on the side of her left torso of two koi swimming in a tangle of seaweed and bubbles. Let's have another drink together. I... I don't really say this often, but... I think I might actually have had enough to drink. Come on, Tully. One more round together. What do you want to drink? And please don't say Jägermeister. I want a glass of champagne. Moet. Uh, how much is a glass? $35. Tully immediately called the hostess over. Hey, hey miss, is my friend's bar tab still open? Of course. Then I'll take seven glasses of champagne. <laughs> I like you. I like a man who takes charge. Yeah, well, it's it's sort of a hard to be authoritative when you're wearing a Hello Kitty t-shirt. I think you're very handsome, Tully. Thank you. I... Wait a second. How do you know my name? I think you told me, like, an hour ago. Did, did I? I don't remember. I don't think I did. Of course you did, Tully. Come on. Let's have another drink. But then, despite the fogginess of his inebriation, Tully felt his chest tighten as something distant in his mind stabbed painfully at him. Something's wrong. Oberlin, Oberlin, we gotta get out of here. Lay off, Tully. I'm having a private conversation with my fiance. Oberlin, stop fucking around. We seriously need to go. I got a really bad feeling about it. Just as Tully stood up, four large men violently shoved open the double doors leading to the stage floor. They walked over to the table where the men were sitting while other patrons and dancers hurried to get out of their way. The men were Japanese each wearing finely cut suits and polished shoes. And as the pack grew closer, Tully could see their necks were covered in tattoos. Shit. He considered throwing a haymaker punch. He thought if he hit the first man hard enough, he might be thrown into the way of the second, giving Tully a quick chance to escape. But he now realized that he could barely lift Oberlin out of his chair, let alone raise his fists above his head. He was simply too drunk to defend himself. Nice to meet you, Mr. Tully. Captain Tully, actually. You know who we are. The Spice Girls? Let me guess. You're Shitty Spice and you... You look like Ninja Spice. We are Yakuza. And you and your friend are coming with us. Two of the men grabbed Tully by each arm, leaving him to feel resigned to his capture. It was over. Time to pay all debts. He wished he had just one more chance.
I'm sorry, McCallum. I am so, so sorry. Thinking about McCallum provoked Tully into one last fit of anger. With his last bit of coherent strength, he managed to spin around, shaking one arm free, and raised it to bring down his fist squarely across Freddy's jaw. You fucking flipped us over, you son of a bitch. You rolled on us, Freddy. How much did they pay you? How much? You cheap fucking hustler. God damn you, Freddy. Fishegg Freddy cast his cloudy eyes downward. I really thought you changed, Freddy. I guess you'll always be the same. Freddy took a last long sip of his Johnny Walker Black, trying desperately not to feel his body grow damp with shame. He tried to enjoy his pricey cocktail knowing the tab would be picked up by the Yakuza. The alcohol was now taking a heavy toll on his consciousness. He could barely lift his head up to see the four brawny gangsters carry his two limp friends out of the pink pussycat club and into the dark van waiting outside, where they would be driven off to be killed. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Callan Orsall and her strike force cruised 100 feet off the ocean floor at a depth of over 13,000 feet. The large Zephyr-class vessel carried McCallan, as well as Anton, military underchief Keitha Watson, and dark water agents Gregor Aginsky and Henry Robertson. Gregor was chosen for the strike force because of his concentrated tracking abilities, while Robertson's massive size and strength reassured McCallan that whatever adversity her team might face would be met with a heavy-handed response. The ship was heading towards Iron Gate, a Black Door server that was a Assuredly protected like a fortress. The fact that McCallan knew nothing about what lay ahead made her feel uneasy. She turned to Anton. What do you think we're going to face in Iron Gate? I really don't know. I'm guessing heavy passive security and knowing Black Door, it'll be disguised and it'll be protected and it might be rather small. How soon until we get there? Maybe another eight or nine hours. That's. Ooh, that is amazingly quick. We're still two to three thousand miles away. How fast can Zephyrs operate? In the absence of current, most Zephyrs can achieve underwater speeds of approximately 65 miles an hour. That seems slow given the distance we're covering. What about with current? Ah, well, that's where a little immortal technology helps us to cheat a little bit. An underwater keyhole? No, no, that would be impressive. 
but rather Leviathan has established a system of sea gates through the seafloor in most of the world's oceans. What's a sea gate? They're a series of hydro-turbine vortexes we've had embedded in the ocean floor. English, Anton. They're giant fans that create a massive current, like the propeller of an outboard engine, except, well, we have the ability to fly through the middle of it. We can then create a directional current that will guide the Zephyr towards the next sea gate, repeating the process. It can more than double or triple our cruising speed. Amazing. How do you keep them hidden? They normally lie flush against the seabed at great depth. We're just above 14,000 feet currently, but we can raise or lower the sea gates and link them together to create pathways to major continents and islands. Here, I'll activate the external lights and you can see us enter the first one in about five minutes. You should, um, hold on to something. Be a little jarring as we enter the vortex. McAllen knelt next to Anton's pilot chair and peered out the cockpit window. At this extreme depth, McAllen saw little sea life outside of the occasional eel or shrimp darting by. But what she did see were endless flurries of marine snow, tiny flakes of detritus that permeated the deep ocean. For a moment, McAllen imagined she was driving through light snow shower of white snowflakes. Get ready. The first sea gate is up ahead. McAllen gripped the armrest of the pilot's chair. Ahead, she watched a round, flat disc rise upwards from the muddy seafloor. It was difficult to get a sense of the object's size at this distance, but as the craft moved closer, she realized that it was over 40 feet in diameter. It resembled a giant child's lollipop, but with a significant opening in the center. The hull of the Zephyr started to rumble as the craft approached the slipstream of the vortex. Anton gripped the arms of the pilot's chair as well, placing his hand on top of McAllen's, and she felt no urgency to remove it. We're going to fly through that? Or crash into its spinning blades. Wait, seriously? That's a risk? Let's just say that you should feel lucky that you chose one of the best pilots in Leviathan. The turbulence in the water grew exponentially as the Zephyr approached the Seagate. McAllen turned her head to peer behind and saw that the other three members of the Strike Force were now fully strapped into their assigned seats and watching Anton's flight path carefully. Mm, nice job. You've managed to attract a captive audience. Let's hope I can manage to maintain a live audience. For a split second, the Zephyr seemed to be approaching the Seagate at too steep an angle, veering too close to the rotating turbine blades, it looked like the ship might make contact when... The Zephyr shot forward instantly, accelerating to more than twice its previous speed. The sudden momentum pushed McAllen deep into the co-pilot's chair, causing her to squeeze Anton's hand. The vessel continued on its launch trajectory until McAllen could just see in the distance another seagate rising from the ocean floor. She stole a glance at Anton, who, while looking relaxed, seemed to maintain a laser-like focus on the ship's maneuvering controls. McAllen soon counted over 30 seagates, 30 violent jolts before the ship began to rise to shallower water, preventing the use of seagates as a security precaution. McAllen felt vaguely seasick from the sudden bursts of motion she had endured, but then she looked at the satellite map and could see that her team had traveled over 350 miles in less than an hour. How do you feel, McAllen? I feel... okay. Well, I did say the seagates could be a little jarring. No, no, I'm okay. I wouldn't give Under Chief Watson the satisfaction of puking in front of her. <laughs> Unless she pukes in front of you first. Not likely. I think she's a little intimidated by you. Right. Like that would ever happen. Well, I bet she's starting to believe that you might pull this off and save our city despite her best efforts. You know, I would do anything to save Leviathan. Not just because it's Leviathan, but because all of this was my call, my decision. We have to make this mission work. You will, McAllen. We will. I know we will, but that doesn't make this any less awkward. I'm not sure I understand. Anton... Spit it out, McAllen. It's... it's what Under Chief Watson said. You fought in the Immortal Civil War. You left Leviathan with Sension, and now... 
Now you're fighting to save it with me? You can understand how, why, I need to make sure of your allegiance. Are you questioning my allegiance? No, no, you know I'm not Anton. I never would. A at least not to me, but... But what? But why the change of heart? Anton looked down at the floor before turning to look at McCowan. You really don't remember anything, do you? You weren't fully immortal then, so it's probably unreasonable to expect otherwise, I suppose, but McCallan, I was there when you were born. I knew your parents, John and Teresa, very well. Biologically, you were modeled after Evangeline, but your eyes, your eyes belong to your mother. They're the same shade as Evangeline's, but yours are rounder. Well, I'd say more innocent, but we both know that's a lie. <laughs> McCallan. Look behind you. McAllen turned her head and spied under Chief Watson huddled in close conversation with Darkwater agents Gregor Raginsky and Robertson. They each had their backs turned to McAllen and were staring at a data pad that she could see from where she sat. She didn't want this mission to happen. She didn't want me as a leader. There's only one reason she could have volunteered for this strike force. That right there is the reason I left Leviathan. Watson joined Leviathan a century before the rebellion. It used to be very different down here. But she and the military chiefs Gravelar and Khan made a lot of changes and were given a lot of autonomy by Evangeline. Wanted to know what everybody was working on, who anybody saw when they left for the surface, punished anybody who stepped out of line. I didn't leave Leviathan. Leviathan left me. And now I see a chance for change. Anton, we just need to make sure we have a city left for us to change. But there will be. Because I believe in you. I've known you longer than you can imagine. I know we're going to succeed and I know you're the leader that our city needs. You ask about my allegiance? I don't think it could be any clearer. Right now I'm fighting for the city I love and the woman that I- Anton paused and realized that his fingers were now intertwined with McAllen's. Uh, woman I greatly respect. McAllen squeezed his hand and fought the urge to brush the unruly mop of dark wavy hair away from Anton's eyes. I need you to watch Watson for me. She's going to try to sabotage this mission, I know it. When we get to Iron Gate, I want you to stay with the Zephyr and monitor the op station. You'll be able to keep tabs on all of us and can communicate with me through a private channel on my PCOM if you see any unusual behavior. Understood. Gregor is a powerful tracker and has risen up the ranks of the Dark Water Force. He's made no secret of his hope of being named chief of it at some point. He's incredibly talented, but also loyal to military chief Khan, who he probably sees as his biggest supporter. Robertson's a different story. He's a deadly combatant, but he's not a violent soldier. I think he just wants to do his job, and right now that means saving Leviathan. I don't think he'll consciously choose to participate in anything that compromises the mission. Let's hope so, because from the size of him, no offense, Anton, I don't think we could do a whole lot to stop it. Anton leaned over his pilot's chair and pulled out a small duffel bag beside his feet and unzipped it slightly so that McCallum could see inside. She recognized the butt of his infamous dart gun. I'm highly confident that it won't come to that. If it does, I want two of those. The Zephyr continued to glide along the mid-Pacific canyons for hours, entering two more series of Seagate clusters, before rising steadily from its parallel course with the seafloor. The dark waters that seemed so impenetrable, even with the Zephyr's powerful external illumination, now gave way to lighter shades of blue and green. McCallan could now visibly identify various sea life rushing past the vessel. An eagle ray, a thresher shark, and in the distance, McCallan swore she saw a glimpse of the tail of a humpback whale. Finally, the long, boxy craft broke the surface of the ocean in a huge cascade of bubbles and swirling water. Scan shows clean water. No vessels in a 50-mile radius. My god. What's wrong? It's just, I, I forgot how 
beautiful the sky is. We've been underground ever since Nishinoshima. We call it mole fever. We spend so much time looking at the luma floor of the cavern ceiling, we forget how bright and how brilliant real sunshine can be. McAllen looked out the cockpit window and could see the oil platform a few miles away, Iron Gate. McAllen half expected to see stormy skies and lightning striking in behind the oil platform that rose over 150 feet above the choppy sea. Instead, the sun shone brightly in the sky above. It's surprising. Wasn't expecting any fortuitous omens. Pilot, what's our ETA on the station? He has a name. Pilot, must I repeat myself? Less than 10 minutes on our current approach and speed. Fine, let's pull up beside one of the supporting struts so we can- Belay that order. I beg your pardon? I'm sorry, but with your permission, Councilwoman, I think it would be prudent to first survey the perimeter of the station for any potential security risks. This is enemy ground and we're entering with limited intel. I know I wouldn't want this mission to be over before it ever got started. Don't you agree, Councilwoman? McAllen glared at Under Chief Watson. I agree, Under Chief. I'll man the command station. The Zephyr took a long, circuitous path around the station, keeping a constant distance of two miles away. When finished, Gregor spun his chair around and removed the AV telemetry helmet he wore at the command station. Anything? I'm not detecting any sensors or passive security, except for a primitive anti-submarine net that was probably last used in World War II. Well, we should be able to jam or disable it, right? A 10-foot fishing skiff with a pair of wire cutters could disable it. The strike force stood in silence, staring at each other. It seems too easy. That is, if this place really is what you say it is, McCallum. All eyes fell upon her. This is still our best option. We need to find out any safe houses or places of protection that Black Door might be using to hide the aliens. It's a long shot, but it is the best lead we have. Everyone suit up and meet on the roof to initiate infiltration. Anton, bring us within range of the grappling hooks and then stay with the ship to make sure we don't face any external threats. Fifteen minutes later, McAllen, Gregor, Robertson, and Underchief Watson all stood on the top deck of the vessel in black infiltration suits. Gregor had a myriad of gadgets hanging from his belt loop and chest sling that McAllen couldn't identify. Robertson, on the other hand, seemed wrapped in firepower. Cesium grenades were carefully lined along his chest sling. Two high-caliber pistols were hanging from his side holsters, but the biggest weapon of all hung from a strap around his chest and neck. The firearm could only be described as a handheld artillery gun. Robertson, Gregor, you two man the grappling guns in the aft. Await my order as Anton takes us within range. Aye, aye, ma'am. Aye, ma'am. The cockpit of the Zephyr extended out slightly beyond the roof deck, and from their vantage point, McAllen and Under Chief Watson could both see Anton through the crystal of the cockpit window. Look at him, leaving Anton behind all by himself. A pretty trusting move, McAllen. We wouldn't last long out here if he decided to... Oh, I don't know. Take off on a little joyride to Vancouver? I trust him more than I do your people. I wouldn't want to get stuck out here if you decided to... I don't know. Head back to Leviathan without me? You would love this mission to fail, Keith. You really are inflated with your own deluded sense of ego. Look who's talking. You're the one that insisted on being a part of a strike force you don't even believe in. You know, McAllen... I viewed the security tapes before joining your strike force. I saw what happened the last time you chose a man to trust. A Mr. Tully, was it? Terrible the way he abandoned you at the hands of Benue. But it does beg one to think, are you really so confident in your character judgment, McAllen? Especially when so much is riding on it. Especially when it comes to men. McAllen tightened her hand into a hard fist and turned to take a giant swing at Under Chief Watson when... Station now within range, McAllen. Awaiting your orders. McAllen turned to look behind her at Gregor and Robertson, who were stationed behind the deck-mounted grappling guns aimed upward at the high support beams of Iron Gate. You and I have unfinished business, bitch. Fire! 
been listening to The Leviathan Chronicles. The Leviathan Chronicles was written and created by Christoph Lepupka, produced by Robin Shaw, produced and musical composition by Luke Allen, directed by Nobi Nakanishi. For a full list of cast and crew, or to purchase the ad-free director's cut, go to leviathanchronicles.com. Thank you for supporting us, and thank you for listening. To discover more podcasts set in the Leviathan universe, go to leviathanaudioproductions.com or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Leviathan Audio Production. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.